0: Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Haj Asad and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human and non-corporeal listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I really appreciate it. And my friend, Ben, and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting, uh, he appreciates it as well. And while I would ask him to show his appreciation, I'll also ask him to let us know where you can find his latest articles. Ben, go for it. You can find my work at MotorTrend, at Car and Driver, at Insight
1: Hook, and at Driving Line.
0: And you can find my work at autotrader.ca, driving.ca, TechSpot, Nouveau Magazine. I think that's it for now. Uh there's probably others out there. But I don't want to. Don't forget all those the... all those bootleg sites that have your yeah. work on them. I don't want to spend all podcasts podcasts talking about where you can find my work online. I want to spend the rest of the podcast talking about cars like we do every week. It Uh, is a predictable podcast,
1: Sammy. I will say
0: that. Oh, is it? Well, this week we've got uh, Hatchback to talk about, right? Sure. Ben, take it away. Come on, tell us about it. So uh,
1: recently, I think it was last week, but it might have been the week before, we talked about the Hyundai Veloster N, which is a hot hatch I super love. And I was curious to see how it would stand up because um, as we've also discussed – The hot hatch segment's kind of in flux right now. We've got a new Honda Civic Type R that's incoming. It's probably 2022 model year, but might be 2023. And the Volkswagen Golf R was redesigned for 2022 as well. And I had that in my driveway for the past week. So for those who are not familiar, the Golf R is a turbocharged all-wheel drive version of the Golf. It's like a big step up over the GTI in terms of power Mm -hmm. and also price. And historically, the Golf R has been kind of a pretty nice car in all respects. Like the interior was nicer than the standard Golf. Uh, you get more features. And it was priced as though almost it was a luxury car. And yeah. I, I, I was a fan of the seventh generation Golf R. I thought it was a a nice pocket GT car. Um, it wasn't exactly a ton of fun to drive in the same way that's something like the Veloster N is or the Ford Focus RS cars that were kind of more visceral and on the edge, but it was very quick and it was composed and it felt refined so it, it was nice in the sense that it had its own personality, Sammy
0: right and I mean I think the it, it was it made up for any like you know what's the word I'm looking for any sort of downside to the to the GTI by having a ton of power and a ton of grip. And I also want to add, the last generation Golf, I think, was pretty good in terms of design, performance, affordability, um, and it felt pretty uh, high-end for a compact car, and I think that scaled really nicely with the GTI and the Golf R. But this new generation model, we're not going to get the regular Golf R, we're just going to get the GTI. I mean, we're not going to get the regular Golf, we're going to get the GTI and the Golf R. And that changes things a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, and it's very easy to see why we're not going to get the regular Golf, because unfortunately... One thing that my week with the Golf R has taught me is that Volkswagen has gone all in on cost-cutting with the eighth-generation Golf Platform. This is a car that does not come across nearly as finished, polished, or even complete- as past versions of the Golf are, and it really seems like Volkswagen decided to focus on volume in Europe with the base Golf, and since they were only going to be selling a few of these cars in North America now, it didn't really need to be as good as it used to be, because they were going to count on the fans to show up and buy the cars and be happy, and not necessarily do any conquests or compete against anyone else very hard. And that's really sad,
0: because But hold on, like, if you're going to focus only on a performance vehicle, it means the enthusiasts will get everything they've ever wanted, right? They're going to get manual transmissions, they're going to get lower price points, they're going to get, you know, just the main performance aspects, right? Isn't that... Isn't that the gist of it? Isn't that the whole focus on this kind of thing? No. So instead of having a car that felt like an
1: almost luxury car, we've gone to a Golf that has a, a more sophisticated drivetrain in terms of its all-wheel drive system. It has more power, and it is objectively quicker. I believe some tests are showing it at like 4.1 seconds to 60, which is a half second, if not
0: better, than what Perfect. it used to do. And that's a lot of sick. that's so fast. This but, is a this is an enthusiast machine. It's it's. It sounds perfect. It's, what it's, talking, But about? it's not exactly
1: an enthusiast machine because the driving experience itself is just as muted as it was in the previous generation, if not more so, in the sense oh, that no. you're disconnected from the drive. And I would be okay with that because I was okay with that with the older Golf R, except for the fact that it has by far the worst interior in its class. And the decisions that led to the problems with the Golf R's interior are clearly related to not wanting to spend
0: a lot of money on this platform in North America. Let, okay, let's run this down again. Last generation Golf R. A, uh, good, punchy power, powertrain. Pretty high cost, but it made up for it by having fairly premium interior. And right? a
1: premium driving experience overall.
0: Right. It, it was like a car you never had to worry about anything about, right? Like in terms of driving it, in terms of feeling confident on the road with it. Everything worked. It was great. Current one. Powertrain. So it has... Nothing else. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing
1: else. Pretty much. So you're getting... The the old Golf R was 288 horsepower. The new one's 315 horsepower, which is 27 additional ponies if you're keeping score at home. Uh, If you get get a DSG dual clutch transmission, you get 295 pound-feet of torque. If you stick with the six-speed manual, which is standard with the car, it's still 280, which is what it was previously. The reason for that is because we're the only market that gets a manual transmission now, North America. So they didn't want to put a ton of money into it, and they used exactly the same transmission from the Mark 7. So that means it could only hold 280 horse, sorry, 280 pound-feet of torque, and that's the reason for the um, the drop in power for the okay. manual cars. Something else to note is in Europe, I believe the um, Golf R is around 330 horsepower, uh, or, th- or it has more torques, on like 310 pound-feet. Something like that. Is
0: it metric? Is that the problem?
1: No, it's because in Europe they're able to, they have better gas. The gas quality, the gas quality is just higher across the board, so they're able to tune for that. Uh, I spoke to someone at Volkswagen in Canada who told me that they had to use a more conservative tune for the 315 horsepower North American cars because they couldn't count on getting that same quality. Weird. Okay. But that's all great. It's very, very fast. Uh, It has a whole bunch of new
0: drive modes. Um, it, the I love drive-, drive modes everyone loves drive modes So We're always switching drive modes all the time
1: when you turn the car on it, it starts in sport mode which I enjoy that's how wonderful it sh- that's, yes. all <laughs> <Literally>, <laughs> that's all I've ever
0: wanted literally that's all I've ever wanted a sports car that starts in sport mode it shouldn't be in comfort, soft, eco mode all the time exactly I want and- it in the real mode I bought it for. Okay. And you realize,
1: too, the eco-motor... What are you talking about? This car sounds like a perfect upgrade! The the comfort mode is also not that great in the sense that... Sure, it's it's softer, but um, when you're driving it, the, the transmission is just a lot more hesitant than you would expect. There were times where like I, I either couldn't get it to downshift, or it did that DSG thing where it kind of growls at you at very low RPM, and then eventually accelerates. So I was... All that to say... Starting in sport mode is is great. There's a race mode, which is the one I use the most often. I just found it was the most fun out of all the modes. There's a drift mode, which is intended to send as much as like 100% of power to the one rear wheel if it needs to.
0: (laughs) One rear wheel?
1: So (laughs) normally it's a 50-50 torque split, I believe, in race mode. But if you go to drift mode, the system will will do the whole, hey, we're going to do something crazy. So we're
0: going to do a 300 horsepower one wheel burnout.
1: Yeah. It's like a maximum chaos setting. I honestly <laughs> didn't really feel the need for it because if you keep the car in race mode, it's actually pretty good at rotating on its own. Uh, I, it was very snowy when I had the car and I took it on some both parking lot fun and some twisty back roads and the car will slide around uh, as you want it to. It doesn't feel out of control. I didn't really see the need for drift mode. Maybe on dry pavement. It's it's a different story. There's also, Sammy, a mode called Special, which was used Ooh. by Volkswagen's test driver when he ran a certain lap at the Nürburgring. It's the specific settings that they, they had the car keyed to for that run. So if you're into that... But nothing
0: that, else. We can't change it to anything else? That's not a custom mode? It's no, there's a custom
1: mode in addition to that.
0: Test driver um, mode. Test yeah. driver Nürburgring mode? Yeah, it's, like, just, it's a novelty. When would you use that? When you're on the Nurburgring, no, and then I mean, crashing you, your car.
1: You could use it at any track, I guess. I mean, that's the idea. But you uh, can also use race mode at every track. You could, and it's and which one will you use, Sammy? <laughs> it's a tough. Well, one. How do I know? How you do can't I know. know
0: which one. Is you can't know. Um, all that to say, you know, those that that also. Well, the drivetrain, the drive train, the driving. That part of it sounds like a like a solid A experience.
1: And yes and no. I mean, it's very quick. But again, but then what about the handling and steering? It's pretty removed from what's actually happening under the car. There's a lot of computer processing going on. I mean, I just described what six or seven drive modes. That kind of tells you just how uh, digitally, what kind of a digital layer there is between the driver and the road. That's fine, I think, for a lot of people. That's what they want. They want kind of a speed experience rather than a driving experience. We talked about this with the Veloster N where it's much more direct. If that's the car you want, then you can get that. It's These are two poles of the same, uh, the same segment. So if that's what you're looking for, that's what, you get, what you're going to get with this car. But the problem is if I'm going to have like a smoother, less frenetic experience with the car, I kind of want the car itself to be mature in other areas. And the interior, because it's so cheap, really ruins that impression. And I want to I describe what I mean by cheap, because that's not a fair word usually to use with a car. But I think it applies with the Golf R because of the choices that were made specifically. Okay. The car is entirely dependent on two screens. The center screen on the dashboard and then the gauge cluster screen. Everything else is just black, piano black plastic. Or a little bit of gunmetal trim. There are almost no buttons in the car. There's a little shift knob, and I mean tiny, like the size of, I don't know, a matchbox on the center console. There are no buttons. that uh, the shifter? The, uh, that
0: nub? A little a t- nub?
1: It's a tiny little nub, and you can Why? use paddle shifters, but you, you're not going to be shifting with the shifter at the center of the car. It's not that kind of DSG setup.
0: But okay. mo- the most important thing—no buttons, you said. No, no so buttons at all. Only two screens. So okay, but hold on. No, let, like let, let, I remember. I, I just—I gotta continue here. Okay. So the the buttons that do exist
1: on the vehicle are all capacitive touch. So there's there's a there's a small grid on the dashboard that has four small buttons. One of them is for drive mode. There's another set of of buttons at the far left on the um, kind of where you'd expect the light controls to be, and they do control the lights, but they also control things like the rear defrost and the front defrost. And then oh. underneath
0: the screen, wait, hold on, that's not usual, is it? No, it's no, not. It's I don't not think usual. I've ever had defrost settings all the way on the. But it's the it, it's the kind right. of
1: thing where if you're an owner, you know where it is, and then you know once you found yeah. it, it's not an issue. But the real problem is the the climate controls. They do have these capacitive sliders that are underneath this t- the touch screen. But they're not illuminated. Mm-hmm. So w- at nighttime, they disappear. You're kidding. No. That can't be. No, they're not illuminated at all. You can't see them. You can't use them. You, Maybe straight you are wearing up,
0: your sunglasses at night or something. No,
1: they're, they're straight up cannot use them. And that means you have to go through the touchscreen to do everything with the car. Once, night, <laughs> once darkness falls, you can't rely on any buttons. Um, oh, no. That wouldn't be a problem as much if the touchscreen was any good. But it was a nightmare to use. It, I I was running Android Auto with it, and it was completely unresponsive. I'd have to touch things two, three, four times to get them to select. And when you're trying to just do something like turn on the heat or the heated seats, which fortunately you can program to come on if the temperature is below a certain degree when you start the car, uh, that's nice. But any kind of um, any kind of interactions with the vehicle systems go through this one screen. And at, there's another set of controls, Sammy, on the. Uh, steering wheel that are also capacitive touch. I have gloves that allow me to use touch screens and capacitive controls in the winter because it's, you know, it's cold in Canada. I want to wear gloves. I couldn't use them with these controls. I never hit the right button. Even with the gloves off and, and my hands freezing, it was very difficult to hit the volume control, the stereo control, the, the cruise controls. It was just a hassle. It was a hassle in every respect.
0: Sounds like a hassle. That's
1: wild. And... The reason I say this is a cost-cutting measure is because it's very, very cheap to make screens. Screens don't cost anything. And it's also very cheap to make black plastic. And when you have an interior like the Golf R that is just black plastic and screens with no detail, it looks awful. It looks oh. bargain basement.
0: You're telling me if I wanted to make a new desk, I should just I should just get a bunch of screens in black plastic to make it as cheap as possible? I, I don't know if you'd want to lean on that. <laughs> yeah, of course.
1: I mean, also the upholstery. Really felt not so great. Uh, it it leather like, vinyl? I guess. <laughs> yeah, it had some blue trim, and other than that, you know, it it, it was just it's a very featureless, unattractive interior. Uh, the 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 it has a, a big sunroof that even when it was closed, just the wind whistled the whole time I was driving. Oh, it's, so- it's none of this is what I expect out of a Golf R.
0: Yeah, I want to explain this uh, a little bit from my perspective, which is somebody who has has never really had the the appreciation for the Golf when they first, um, when, I think the Golf was pretty popular. Um, when I first entered the industry, I didn't really get the, the, the point of what makes the Golf such an appealing vehicle to so many people. And the more I spent with it, the more I got the, the feeling that it felt like a slightly, like a class up in a couple of ways from some of the more traditional compact cars. If the Golf R, which is supposed to be the more expensive, more enthusiastic, more engaging, more exciting version of that car, is not delivering any sort of class-up experience, then this is a huge problem for the Volkswagen um, Golf Series in general, right? I mean, I would think it was a
1: huge problem, but I get the impression that it's not for Volkswagen. I get the impression this is a car they made out of obligation, where they're like, you know, we have to kind of satisfy our Golf R fans, and since we don't really have any other performance cars in North America other than the GLI, uh, we have to bring both the GTI and a Golf R. And and the Golf R was kind of, in some ways, the flagship model for Volkswagen because they've never really had yeah. that full size flagship sedan. The Passat was never that, and they tried with well, the Fate when they put the and,
0: W. When the, oh yeah, the Fate
1: yeah, that was that was kind of a, a they big had that W motor them. in
0: both of those cars. Yeah,
1: so the <laughs> that Golf that R. The Golf R meant something in North America, and it kind of
0: at this point feels like the focus has been completely lifted off of that. And it was it, it's, a budget Audi at the time. I, I thought it was like a budget Audi in so many ways, right? Or, or and maybe even, that's why they did what they did?
1: Well, you know, it could have been like a hatchback A3, which we didn't really have anymore. Yeah. And that's that's no longer the case. I mean, I, I don't want to say that the, the Mark 7 Golf R was fantastic inside, it wasn't like an overwhelming luxury
0: experience. But it was, but it was a, better than – I think it was better than a Type R. Yeah, it, for sure. And it was, it was classy. It was significantly better than a Subaru SDI.
1: It was classy. It looked decent. It felt good. The infotainment wasn't great because Volkswagen just seems to have trouble doing that. It, it, it was, but it was way better than what's there now in
0: terms of responsiveness. So, it's <sighs> also interesting to see how the industry has changed because I think when the Golf R, last generation Golf R happened and the GTI, we had that virtual cockpit. Which was really cool, really like forward, uh, really futuristic. And now everyone has a digital gauge cluster that does the same thing. Exactly. And and now this doesn't seem as special anymore, right? No.
1: And and you know the pricing has stayed relatively the same. It's a forty three thousand dollars car to start
0: with. Yeah, that's tough. Like now you've you've like like it feels like I would rather tell somebody, hey, maybe you should take a look at a last generation model.
1: It's you know the 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 Civic Type R is expected to come in at under forty and the Veloster N is 32 33. Yeah, yeah,
0: much cheaper.
1: So at that point, you have to give people something to pay for. It's it's not necessarily going to be performance because I don't think this I don't think this car is more fun to drive than its competitors. Uh it might be quicker in a straight line, but that's very much one trick. And if that's what you're into, that's fine, but there's other ways to go quick in a straight line that aren't the Golf R. So
0: Yeah. At forty-three I mean, thousand dollars, you have a but, lot of choices. Hold on, but few of those, yeah, few of those will be as practical as a Golf R, right?
1: Sure. I mean, the one, the one good thing I will say about its interior is it's very spacious and it feels spacious. The way that the um, the um, what is it? The greenhouse, the mm-hmm. glass. It's it's done to the point where I didn't feel like I was cramped. I didn't feel like I was being surrounded by really huge pillars like I am in some cars. So I, I appreciated that. But the whole car is just a huge letdown and. I haven't felt this way about a car in a really long time. Um, It's just such a drop in quality between generations is rare these days. I think the last time I felt like this was when Honda came out with the Civic like 10 years ago. And the Civic was completely missing the mark in terms of quality. Everyone else in the compact segment went up in terms of um, materials and features And Honda decided to kind of stay the course and keep it a very stripped down car. And that turned out to be such a problem for them that two years later, they'd redesigned it. So I I think this is as big of a missing the mark um, as that other car. I mean, it does have the shining drivetrain, which is really great. But the package that's wrapped around it is to be avoided.
0: That's it. I mean, I think that's a a really succinct way of putting it. I I don't think... And it sucks. I think, like I said, I saw this as a as a alternative to somebody who wanted something like an S three and didn't want couldn't deal with the sedan form factor, couldn't fit, pay the Audi price point. Um and they got away with a little bit much a little bit more with their money with uh with a golf R, and it just doesn't feel like you're getting that at all in any way or form with this new model. No, it it's shocking. Uh, it's shocking. Yeah. I don't know where I don't know how they can justify that they can justify that transformation. I
1: don't have anything else nice to say about this car. So I think we should move on because I feel like I've really beaten it up. As I said, you know, the powertrain is really good. It's just my experience with the car isn't good.
0: Yeah. I mean, but if there's one good thing and three bad things about it, it's, that's a bad car. It's, it's
1: unfortunate.
0: I mean, if the price was lower, yeah. then you can forgive this kind of stuff. Like, I, I have a GTI. If the price was lower, if the upholstery was nicer, if the technology worked, if you could see the buttons. Yeah, I like- mean, it's I, from a user experience,
1: if you're trying to use the infotainment system, it's the worst in the industry. I know we talked a lot about um, Lexus and how terrible <laughs> their little is, mouse controller is. This is
0: at that level. It, is. it yeah.
1: is at that level, Sammy, unfortunately. But if, if this was, you know, I have a GTI coming in, in about a month. Mm -hmm. And the GTI is significantly cheaper, and I'm going to see if the personality of the cars match or if I'm going to be more forgiving because I'm paying a lot less money, which is entirely possible. I mean, the Veloster N doesn't have a great interior, but it does have one that isn't, you
0: know, impossible to use. And that really goes a long way on a daily basis. Absolutely. Um, I have a car that we haven't spoken about in a very long time. It's the Subaru Ascent. Do you remember the last time we spoke about the Subaru Ascent? I think it's been three or four years. This is wild. Um, the Subaru Ascent, if you recall, is the latest effort from Subaru to make a three-row SUV. Uh, mainly because their first row effort, was uh, their first go at this uh, segment didn't go so well. Um, I think we all remember the Tribeca or the B9 Tribeca. Shout out to
1: the B9 Tribeca. You know, every time I see one, it's a, it's a miniature event. Because <laughs> it's like the rarest vehicle on the road. The rarest mainstream vehicle, I think. That and the RDX. From that yeah. era are like the two SUVs that nobody bought and nobody kept.
0: And it's funny because like I actually see some um, Tribeca's and I'm always surprised at how like they're in decent shape. Like they haven't like turned into rust or anything, right? Well,
1: I am sure if you own a Tribeca, you probably don't drive it that often.
0: <laughs> you don't want to be seen in it.
1: It's the thing is like there was nothing horribly wrong with that vehicle. It just wasn't very good in the sense that well, it was small inside and it had yeah. unusual front end styling. And those two things kind of sunk it. You, If you're, if it's your first anything, you really have to put your best effort out there. It's like, you know, we were talking a few weeks ago about the Jeep Commander. When right. When they tried to make a three-row version of the Grand Cherokee, basically. And they called it something else and gave it different styling. And it was the same deal. It was awkward to look at. And it was very cramped inside. And it's
0: essentially a B9 Tribeca with a Jeep badge. And, uh, and, and not to mention the B9 Tribeca was pretty pricey for what it was, too, right? Like, it just didn't know where we're aiming for in the segment. But the Subaru Ascent I think is a far more confident showing from Subaru with the three row um in the three row market. However, the entire segment has gotten much better since the since the Ascent showed up, and the Ascent has not done much to um keep itself relevant. I think I, have a trim- I kinda yeah. think I think
1: I think what helps with the Ascent the, like, the second time around is there was a clear blueprint as that Subaru followed. Like yes when I think of the Ascent there's nothing about it that stands out. There's nothing about it that's really hugely different from what people expect from a three-row crossover.
0: Absolutely, um, but you know the the three-row. Let's talk about that three-row crossover segment in terms of popularity. I think the Highlander and the Pilot are among the more pilot, uh, popular products in the segment. Critically acclaimed, we're, we've all fallen in love with the um, Hyundai the Hyundai Palisade and the Kia Telluride. And, of course, I know that um, there are some fans of the Volkswagen Atlas, which is a little bit more bare-bones, but more... Um, it, it's affordable, it's spacious, it it, it hits all of these bullet points. And don't forget also the
1: Ford Explorer, which continues to do of course. really strong sales and kind of is in a weird in-between spot where it's like a three-row, but it's more of an SUV than a crossover, even though it isn't really.
0: <laughs> and, of course, I mean, you and I have also kind of... Um, we have a dark horse uh, – we've discussed a dark horse in this segment, which was the um, Chevrolet offering. The Traverse is actually a lot better than people give it credit for. You just don't see very many of them. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I guess the pricing just hasn't really resonated with people. Or I think – I, I
1: also think the Traverse went on a mid-cycle refresh for this model year. And Man. I've heard almost
0: nothing about it. Like, it's, yeah. it's like a stealth <laughs> refresh. So I'm curious to kind of find out more. So – When we look back at the Ascent, I think when it debuted, I think in 2018 or 2019, um, it was pretty good. It it was a really good price. It was extremely spacious, um, and it had some really clever touches inside, like these little handles on the second row captain seats to help people um, scoot their way through from the third row. I know you're always talking
1: about handles inside cars because I know for you, when you look at the interior of a car... Your your mind is like a Hollywood fight choreographer where you're yeah. like, if I needed to have a confrontation with six or seven bad dudes in this car, where can I get a grip firmly and quickly
0: to unleash my fury? Well, I mean, if there were, if there if was six or seven bad dudes in this car, I think it, we would be overloaded in terms of – there would definitely be more people than seatbelt and we'd need to kick somebody out. Well, I thought and you said course, it was a three-row. It is a three-row, but I mean the captain's seat – the captain's chair in the second row – and then there's two people in the first row. So um, you know, we've got seven people. But I didn't eight... start a podcast about cars so I could do math. I've just Okay. Kidding. You wanted to talk about the fight choreography inside the car. I think it would work really well. Okay. There's also um I think like twenty cup holders in this car, which is another great asset in an in-cabin um fight. I think there's always something there to uh, throw at somebody or to use the weapon well
1: i know you could like put glitter or sand in some of those cup holders and then whisk it out into their eyes and blind them momentarily
0: yep glitter for sure um i've never i struggle to find packets of sand that would work really well in a car you need but... to
1: you, if you go to michael's you can get craft sand and it's really really fine and it gets uh-huh. into, it gets into everything ask yep. me how i know
0: so, under the hood of the Subaru Ascent is a is an actually it's a surprisingly good engine. It's a 2.4 liter boxer um, four cylinder engine. It makes like 270 horsepower or 260 horsepower. It's and turbo, right? It is turbocharged. Okay. Did I say that twice? I don't think you said it at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is turbocharged. It makes a really a decent amount of horsepower. It's not a lot because, like I said. We, we have, like, these V6 vehicles and turbocharged six-cylinder vehicles in the class. Um, for example, like, um, you mentioned the Explorer as a Turbo 6. And, you know, the Telluride and the uh, Palisade both have a big V6. Right. So the motor in the, in the Ascent only makes 260 horsepower and 277 pound-feet of torque. That doesn't sound like a lot, but there's something about the CVT and again, I know a lot of people kind of groan about a CVT. I did, I, my eyes just rolled back into my head when you said I that. I know. There, there's something about the CVT that really makes the car feel um, alive at, at low throttle um, or low speed situations. So much so that I actually drove this car back to back with a Pathfinder, a new Nissan Pathfinder, which has a more powerful engine, a V6, and it felt significantly slower and less sort of responsive than the Subaru Ascent. So I was pretty impressed with how quickly this thing got up to speed. Um, it, was a, it was much louder, obviously, than something like the Pathfinder, and obviously the Telluride and the Palisade. But I was just surprised at how responsive it was. And then the cabin as well. Um, nothing special, not high-end. It's not going to wow you, but it gets the job done. And I think you could say that about a lot of things with the Subaru Ascent. And for a vehicle that starts at like thirty-two thousand dollars, the model I had was actually a mid-trim version called the Onyx Edition, which I think is based on a popular Pokemon uh, named no, Onyx.
1: No, it's a '90s hip-hop group tribute. Oh, yeah. There's, a, that, there's the there's Onyx, Onyx Sticky Fingers edition. Yeah, exactly. It plays. There's like a. There's a. It comes with a memory card that exclusively plays Slam until you remove it.
0: <laughs> Until you remove it. Remember okay, when so you
1: remember when cars accepted memory cards? That's not really a thing anymore, is it? But I am pretty sure you can stick a USB stick with Yeah, 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 but it's all over the <laughs> air now, Sammy. That's what it's all about.
0: You mean streaming, like Bluetooth.
1: No, I mean like the updates, you know, like you used to be oh, able to yeah, get yeah. like navigation updates and whatnot. Oh, and they were so expensive. This memory card with a map in it. Yeah. I, I remember, so in my Cadillac, I remember that it has a, well, I don't I remember. It has a DVD system for yeah. the Yeah, when was navig- the last
0: time you drove your Cadillac, man? It's been almost a year. <laughs> no uh, wonder you forgot.
1: It has that navigation system that runs on DVDs, and they're super expensive to buy from yeah. Cadillac. But it's the same company that makes them for Infinity, where they're, like, way cheaper. And what? You can just, yeah, you can just buy an Infinity DVD and put that in, and it was exactly the same mapping information
0: do you think this was the um the the dark horse for that johan uh exchange between infinity and cadillac yeah or? they're like all right
1: uh you could become our new ceo as long as you cut off this pipeline of cheap nav dvds <laughs> and he was like i'll do what i can but no promises
0: no i think he was like whoa hold on the same company that makes uh the dvds for this is also making the dvds for these guys i'm going over there um I, I have to admit, like, for a car that costs $37,000, the this Onyx Edition, um, and tops that at forty five, I was pretty impressed with what we got here. I think it's um, better than the uh, Toyota Highlander and the uh, and the Honda Pilot. I think it is a whoa, whoa, more— whoa. I,
1: I want to hear why you feel that way, because you said that it hadn't exactly kept up with the market. But, I mean, those are two class leaders in, in the eyes of a lot of buyers, and I'm curious as to what puts the Subaru above them.
0: I think the most important thing is price. This thing tops out at $45,000, while some of its competitors can get close to 48000 or $50,000. And you don't is, think the extra money is bringing anything of value? N- no, absolutely not. Okay. And as I mentioned, the CVT um, is resp- allows this, this four-cylinder engine to feel responsive, although it's not particularly super fuel efficient. It gets about 26 miles per gallon on the highway. Um, I saw closer to like twenty. Four ish, twenty five. Um, That's still pretty decent test. for one. It's good. It's decent, right? It always comes with all wheel drive too. That's something that the other cars don't offer. They you have to pay extra from the get go in order to get all wheel drive in something like the path, the Pathfinder. Um, I kind of wish they had some answer for some of these cars that have multiple powertrains, like the Highlander, uh, which can be had with a with a hybrid, which is very good, but. I I just think that if somebody's looking for a three-row crossover and doesn't want the fancy ones, they're going to get exactly what they're looking for with the Subaru Ascent.
1: I think, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned multiple drivetrains because the more I think about Subaru, their whole lineup is – I mean, not their whole lineup, but much of their lineup is designed around the idea that they've come up with a good drivetrain for that platform. Mm -hmm. And if you like it, that's great. And if you don't like it, you don't have any other choices. I mean – I think, I'm not sure, but does the Legacy still offer multiple drivetrains?
0: Yes. Okay. It has a turbo and a non-turbo. Same with the Outback. Same
1: with the Outback and probably the Forester. But if you're looking at the Impreza, you can't do that. If you're looking at the BRZ, you can't do that. And the Ascent, you can't do that either. I don't think, does Crosstrek have, have multiple? Yes, it has a
0: bigger, engine and a, a bigger engine and a small engine. And the Forester, I don't think, has a, a second engine.
1: The Forester is only one engine now? Yeah. Okay. So it's about half their lineup has the choice, and half yeah.
0: of it doesn't. That's interesting. Um, I had thought it was more than that, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it, I I agree with you. I think it's it's interesting. They fit, they found some again. It's you're either going to like what they've got in terms of a powertrain or not. One of the biggest downsides to the vehicle is the the CVT and the the other sort of downsides that CVTs come with, which is low towing capacity. This thing only allows for like five thousand pounds. Um, and you, we mentioned drive modes, really a ton of drive modes in your, in your golf. Um, there are like, there's one drive, there's one drive mode, one extra drive mode in the ascent and it's called X mode. And it's made for when things get slippery.
1: So, you know, I was thinking about why Subaru might not have so many engines. And the answer, I think, goes to the fact that it's a small company and -hmm. it can't necessarily amortize the cost of those engine developments across a large lineup. Like if you're Toyota or Honda, you could put that engine in many, many vehicles. But if you're Subaru, you have like, what, half a dozen vehicles in your fleet? Yeah. And and it's a lot harder to justify that. Whereas if you have 18, like Toyota, I mean, you can, you know... (laughs) Or and, and, and also, we know Toyota tends to run certain things into the ground. Like, yeah. they'll use that engine forever. They're going to get a lot of use out of whatever engine they develop. So,
0: it's not Absolutely. necessarily
1: the same thing as Subaru.
0: So, I also wanted to... You've, you've spoken about the Pathfinder in the past, and you had some pretty lukewarm feelings about it. You thought it was pretty good. Um, it's tried to evolve... Um, personality wise yeah visually especially i think they really kind of push to make it look more macho absolutely they and i think this is more really more of an effective design change than anything else it yeah is, it is kind of dull to drive like i said it's got a v6 that doesn't feel particularly special the nine speed is a bit uh slow at times i but had a really nice cabin yeah, and- it's it's the kind of car where there's nothing to really
1: complain about. If it's what, You know how we often talk about how some vehicles in a vacuum, they're yeah. perfectly fine, and you get into them, and you're like, oh, okay, this does everything I needed to do, and there's nothing I really dislike about this vehicle. But then if you were to drive something that was leading the class, you mm-hmm. would see where the differences are, and I kind of feel like the Pathfinder's representative of that. If you I mean, don't drive anything else, you'll be like, "This is really great." If you drive something else, you might find a few things that other vehicles do better, but
0: at the same time, it's it's a good vehicle all around. Absolutely, and, and I want to say something similar about the Ascent, right? Like the Ascent does exactly what three rows are designed to do. It, it transports a lot of people very quickly, very easily, um, with good fuel efficiency um, and relatively decent comfort as well. If that's all you're looking for, it's going to deliver, right? Yeah. yeah. And for a really decent price, the Pathfinder. Uh, a little bit more high, high end. Are you really getting what you want with that extra cost? I'm not so sure, right? Like, how much? Then again, you spend so much time in some of these vehicles, and not just you, but three rows of passengers in some cases. Let's say at least two. You want to make sure that everyone has, you know, it, it has the legs, it has the comfort, it has the features that'll make a, a longer road trip worth it. If I remember,
1: the uh, third row in that Pathfinder is actually pretty decent.
0: Yeah, it's really good. The Subaru Ascent third row is just okay. I wouldn't recommend it for adults. Um but it it works. Like it it, it can work. So uh there there's something else I wanted to speak uh, uh,
1: about speak about. I wanted to talk us to talk about today and it's a segment we we touched on late last year where we were talking yep. about forbidden fruit, Sammy. And- oh yeah. More specifically, classes of vehicle that you could get in other parts of the world but never really made it in North America. So they've kind of adopted this cult status. So we talked about key cars, the yep. tiny little Japanese cars that are, were built to satisfy very specific regulations in Japan about taxation and fuel use and all this stuff. Um, but today I want to talk about something that was, it was more organic and in fact dates back to almost the beginning of the automotive industry, and then it took off in certain parts of the world,
0: and others not so much. Okay, what is this class you're talking about? I'm talking about Utes. 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 And I think Utes is a really important thing to talk about right now, especially given the recent buzz around um, electric, first of all, electric pickup trucks are a big, big thing these days. Yeah, and we also had the Maverick and the- And small um, pickup trucks. Yeah, Santa Uh, Cruz. which are kind of like car-based, I think.
1: Yeah, and so that concept goes back to, you know, back when Henry Ford was making the first mass-produced car, the Maltine and, the, and you know, the Model As and all these vehicles, um, you could get them in a surprisingly wide array of configurations. It wasn't yeah. like you just got a truck or you just got a coupe or you just got a sedan. You could get something called like a coupe utility, which was like a coop with a truck bed you could get something that was like a weird oh, like like an open air truck i mean they had something called a, a utility runabout which was an open air truck with a covered compartment like they had like a fabric cover over where the driver sat but there was a, like a rear-facing oh, yeah kind of but there was a rear-facing bench in the cargo area like subaru brat style <laughs> yeah perfect yeah so um
0: anyway but all- the you the Ute segment has died off relatively recently. I well, think the last ones we've seen are in the late twenty teens or so. Yeah.
1: So the the thing about U- Utes is, and that's short for utility, um, it never really caught on in North America. in the, In the sixties, well, we we got the El Camino, we mm-hmm. got the Ford Ranchero, and vehicles like that. There was, of course, the GMC Caballero, which was. Like is the— Is the
0: Brat considered a Ute?
1: The uh, the, the the I'm sorry
0: is the subaru brat considered a UTE? then yeah it would be i, yeah. I would consider that UTE. so there was like a brief uh, and then flirtation. we got one weird one we didn't we get one weird weird one the like chevrolet ssr well there's the, the ssr is more of a pickup truck because it's
1: not really a cargo area back there oh, okay. um and also there's a the subaru brat that we got oh, yeah. in the early 2000s but that was like later it it, it, it baja yeah baja, you brat yeah a- anyway um While in North America, we kind of, they were, they were novelties. They were like, you know, if you had an El Camino, it wasn't necessarily because you were going to put it to work. It was because you liked how it looked. It was like a car truck and you thought that was cool and you could get a muscle car version of it. But in places like Africa and Australia, especially, youths became integrated into daily life. And even, you know, in England for a long time, in the early, you know, before the war, And just after the war, you could get companies like Armstrong and Austin were making all these compact pickups that were really just cars with an open bed. So there was a practical component to these vehicles that never caught on here because we had so many trucks already. It wasn't necessarily something people were interested in. If you wanted a truck, you just bought a truck. But if you were in England or you were in Australia, you couldn't necessarily get a great big truck. And you wouldn't necessarily want one because of how the roads were, um, especially in Europe or or um, <clears throat> urban parts of Australia, right? You right. don't necessarily want to take up a ton of room and use a ton of gas. So this whole Ute, co- Ute culture just kind of sprung up around them. You got stuff like Holden and Monero were making mm. tons of Utes. Uh, the HSV, high-performance Utes. Ford had, I believe it was the XP6 was a really popular Ute from in Australia. And then, you know, you would go to um Africa and you would see stuff that called the um the Backy Sammy, which was the Backy. Yeah. So Nissan made something called the Baki, and they called it the Baki because in the back it was like a cargo bed, right? But it was based on the sunny sedan, which I think was sold here as the Sentra or the Pulsar or something. I'm not sure exactly on my Nissan terms. But imagine, like, a a compact Nissan sedan with a pickup bed, and that's the backy. And that was super popular. They made a whole bunch of those. And then companies from Asia in the early 2000s, like Proton, which never sold in North America, kind of jumped on that bandwagon.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that Proton got, on a, got in on this as well.
1: Yeah, and even Suzuki. They made something called the Mighty Boy in the 80s, which is like the I'm best sorry, the ever. what? The Mighty Boy. It they was, used
0: it on a ute. It was based
1: on the Suzuki servo, which was like a really tiny hatchback, and they just cut the hatchback part off and made it open.
0: Uh, the cargo bed is two feet long. <laughs> what is the, what's the utility of that? The, the, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, okay, you know, so the, the European question...
1: stuff, we did, oh, yeah. get, we did get some of it. We got the Volkswagen Caddy, which was a, a rabbit pickup mm-hmm. in the in the 80s. And they made it into the 90s, but it didn't last here that long. Uh, and then there was also um, another European entry was from Skoda. It was called the Felicia Fun. And it was, it, it took 12 and a half seconds to get to 60 miles an hour. So I'm not sure exactly how fun it was to drive, but it was basically just a Felicia uh, coupe that had the rear coupe part gone and it has a pretty useful bed but they they made a weird seat in it they they instead of like the brat where the seats were just kind of bolted into the back of the cargo bed the felicia fun had this panel that you pushed out to the wheel wells and then it popped up like it, it included the glass from the back of the pickup compartment and then in front of that there were these seats that like folded down and you were just completely exposed to the elements <laughs> And so was the interior now because
0: he had this big gaping hole where the glass had been. Um, I keep thinking about these vehicles and how um, how there's – I think there is an opportunity for them to to have a reemergence, right? Like the, the issues with Utes were – in terms of popularity, they weren't really popular here in North America, but they were popular in other markets. However, the factories that were making them, I think in Australia, shut down and then – that seemed to be, or at least the ones that were making the most popular models. Yeah, the most uh, modern,
1: the most modern units. I mean, Holden and Ford aren't really doing business in Australia as they used to. Right. Um, and we almost got a Holden U- as the Pontiac G8 sport truck. That was a concept that was shown off, I think, around 2010,
0: but it never ended up happening. And, yeah. So uh, I keep thinking about the electric car situation and how if we went, if, if people just want that utility without... As much practical, uh, as much um, off-road capability, which is i like somewhere kind of like what walking that line that a, a Maverick does or a Santa Cruz does. Um, these these might be a perfect fit for electric cars because, you know, you can adjust the body style and the drivetrain to whatever your customers is looking for right
1: i mean the 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 problem comes down to what kept utes out of our market in the first place which is the availability of trucks and there's just so well, many yeah, trucks
0: the 50 and the pricing of those trucks too right yeah
1: so you have to if you were going to do something like that you'd want to make sure that it could compete and i know the ford maverick which is kind yeah. of in some ways a ute uh yeah and,
0: and it's so affordable and it's efficient and like but pricing, the modern is, ute, pricing right?
1: is really what draws
0: people to the maverick right it's so cheap yeah so that's that
1: seems to be the right strategy. But car companies are not necessarily interested in making money on very cheap cars because you have to sell a ton of them to make a profit versus a more expensive car like the Santa Cruz, which offers a, uh, a, a turbo trim that's, you know, in the 30,000s and they can make more money off of that. So I don't know. I mean, maybe if you're a startup company making electric cars and you, you're you able to somehow, if you have a modular system for bodies and you can easily offer a ute option when people are ordering that doesn't take that much more assembly cost to do, I, maybe that would work.
0: Maybe. I think I messed it up. I think you're, the Maverick is probably exactly what the modern ute is here, the modern Ranchero or or Camino, but with a little bit more um, accessibility just based on price, right? Do
1: you do you think Ford makes money on the Maverick?
0: No. So But might... I think I think what they do I think what Chad's Chad said something that really stuck with me when he came on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He said truck buyers tend to stay truck buyers. So they just need to get a first truck before they upgrade into another one. And yeah, I think it's that like the loss leader. It's like the super yeah. cheap
1: oranges at your supermarket that get you in to buy the really expensive Pam <laughs> Yes,
0: or the yes, exactly, or the pomelo. Um, so I think it is such an interesting point that I really never considered as as closely when they have not only the F one hundred and fifty, but the different variants of the F one hundred and fifty from the Lightning to the Raptor, and then two fifties and other things like that. If those fit people's lifestyles after uh, getting a taste of it with the Maverick, then it's a it's a win for Ford.
1: Well, I can tell you that. Um... I grew up in inside trucks. My my mm-hmm. father always had trucks and some of them were for work, but then they eventually became his daily driver. So we he's never not had a truck or two in the driveway.
0: In so that his... fact has stayed true for him.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because when he grew up, he didn't have trucks. Like he drove cars and it wasn't until he started working and, and driving trucks at work that he came to like them and then have them at home. And I think there's a lot of truth as to what you and Chad are saying.
0: Well, you, you said that he got a new daily driver that, with uh that is not trucky right well
1: so i mean <laughs> here's the thing my father has like over a dozen cars at any given time because <laughs> he has the same disease that i do yeah um he just has more room to park stuff <laughs> and yeah he he picked up a a kia um a soul mm-hmm. for, to drive around in the summer because he, his other two daily driver trucks were using too much fuel Oh yeah, uh, and he he enjoys it, but at the same time, he still has those trucks to use whenever he needs them, and he's driving right. them all winter long,
0: right? So, Did you show him the Maverick?
1: No, I haven't driven the Maverick no. yet.
0: What a, oh, sorry. Did you show him the the Santa Cruz? Yes, and he liked and, it very much. So, is, is he also gonna get another Santa Cruz? Now? I mean,
1: interestingly, my parents have a have a Santa Fe at home. Oh, um, they bought it. They they've bought two Santa Fe's now back to back to replace the original. And my family had never owned an import car before. And oh, I mean, my father was a big Ford fan growing up, and but we we had a ton of uh, GMC pickups. And uh, then he moved to Fords again, and then he has, had a Ram. And it's interesting to me that, that, that Hyundai was the first import that, that they owned. And I think that really speaks to the inroads that that company has made in terms of quality and just raising their profile among buyers who maybe never would have considered them. I, I'm sure... In the 90s, my parents never gave a second thought to Hyundai. You
0: well, know? I think looking at what Hyundai has done with the Santa Cruz and what Kia has done with the Soul, they also reach out into these really weird segments and maybe a Ute, like a more modern looking Ute or smaller Ute would be a really interesting fit for them too. Yeah, maybe. Um, I think that's it for this week's episode. Oh, Savia, I forgot about oh. one more Ute. Which one? I didn't. Uh, the, the, uh, the
1: Toyota BB Sky Deck. Was that what it was called?
0: What? This is a droid from Star Wars. No,
1: no, no. So, the Scion XB, this super cute little toaster. Yes. And it was sold in Japan as the BB. But there was an open cargo bed version of the BB. And I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was essentially the same as. I'm looking at it. It's called the Open Deck. Okay. So, it was still a four door XB, but it had this like truncated open cargo area that's probably about the same size as the mighty boys if i'm being honest and they had these two bars that came out from the roof and like attached to the rear quarter panels so it was kind of like like you could water ski from the back of the bb if you wanted to
0: oh great yeah anyway it's pretty ridiculous but also super cool Okay, cool. Are we going to link – do you have an article uh, that covers some of this stuff? I think you've written an article about this stuff. About the communication
1: of the world? Yeah, I I have something I think that I can put in the show notes for people who want to dive more deeply into the world of utes, something that was up on Motor Trend a few years ago that I did for them.
0: I'm sure our listeners do want to dive more deeply into the world of utes as well as the other vehicles that we've been testing or talking about this week. The easiest way to do that is to head on over to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. And while you're over there, you'll see a bunch of our l- last episodes or our previous episodes. Um, and you'll see some links in the show notes. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a great place to start when you, when you think about the Unnamed Automotive Podcast, right? Great the place website.
1: to show up, make some friends, talk, have some laughs.
0: While and- you're there, there's a bunch of links in the top of the website to allow you to subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcatcher. Or you can just search for us on your on whatever device you're using or app that you're using. Right, Ben? Yeah, and if you wanted to reach out to us, you can do that on the on the website.
1: I don't, did you mention that, Sammy? No, no. So Tell them how they can talk to us. You could, There's a, a contact form on the website that you just fill out the, the fields that are there, click submit, and bam, it ends up in our inbox. If you want to get in touch with us on social media, you can find Sammy on the cesspool that is Twitter. He is at underscore sorry that's not correct he is at sammy <laughs> underscore ha huh? like you're laughing don't go to the at underscore that's one of the people who's bootlegging sammy's writing yeah um you can find me on instagram it's at hunting benjamin or you can email me the old-fashioned way benjamin at dot i love it when people reach out sammy loves it too we like answering mm-hmm. questions we just like hearing your thoughts or you know what you're driving what your projects are we're always interested in that um and uh, Sammy, what, uh, there's, there is a note I wanted to make. We may or may not be doing an episode next week because I have to have dental surgery. <laughs> and it's right around the time we normally record. I don't know if I'm going to be able to speak without sounding like I have a mouth full of blood and cotton balls. Eesh. So, yeah, that was maybe. You have to an,
0: get graphic like that cotton ball.
1: Maybe an overshare there. But we're going to try to do an episode. If we don't, we're just going to push it off to the next week and have this gap. Sorry about that. I just don't, you know, if I'm incomprehensible or at least more incomprehensible than usual, I don't think that benefits anybody. Sammy, next week when we may or may not be recording, what do you want to be talking about?
0: I want to talk about the Toyota Highlander because I've got into that recently as well.
1: Okay, I'm going to be talking about or maybe not talking about the Volvo V90 Cross
0: Country. Oh, yeah. And you are going cross-country with it. I am. So uh, that's, you know, on brand. <laughs> yes. Um, all right, Ben. I can't wait to talk to you. I hope the surgery goes well. And uh, Well, they're giving me the extra
1: teeth, Sammy. It's what I've always dreamed of.
0: Finally. You finally, need them. Really. Finally,
1: my mouth is big enough. All the enlargement exercises have paid off and the, and the extra teeth are going to fit.
0: <laughs> Very cool. I'll talk to you next week or whatever. Bye-bye. Bye.